This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Let us commence as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question today being the 19th of November. It was on November 19th in 1493 that Christopher Columbus discovered Puerto Rico. While the Caribbean island is technically a part of the United States, after visiting it six years ago, this correspondent has happily joined the Puerto Rican independence movement. On this date in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln delivered one of the most famous speeches in history at the dedication of the military cemetery at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The speech was only 272 words long, but it's noted that perhaps no other person has so eloquently defined the American vision as Lincoln did that day in Gettysburg. On November 19, 1942, Soviet General Georgi Zhukov launched Operation Uranus, the great World War II counteroffensive that turned the tide against the Germans and thousands of Romanian, Hungarian, and Italian troops at the Battle of Stalingrad. Americans like to think that the, the turning point World War II was the D-Day invasion, and it certainly was a turning point. But probably more properly, it uh, was at Stalingrad that the fortunes of the Nazis took a permanent turn for the worse. And largely forgotten by history, it was on November 19, 1969, that U.S. astronauts Charles Conrad and Alan Bean of Apollo 12 made the second landing on the moon. Coming just four months after the first moon landing, uh, NASA had a bit of a public relations problem when Alan Bean accidentally pointed the camera toward the sun and <laughs> thus burned out the lens and lost live TV coverage for the world. And of course, when the, the celebrated Apollo 13 had its uh, brush with disaster the next year, well, <laughs> it took till Apollo 14 to get things back on track, and the public had uh, unfortunately kind of moved on, as the fickle public sometimes will do. We'll have a little bit more to say about the moon later in the program. Our quote of the day comes from John Calvin, the founder of Calvinism, which led to numerous other spin-off churches, including Presbyterianism. Said Calvin, men are undoubtedly more in danger from prosperity than from adversity. For when matters go smoothly, they flatter themselves and are intoxicated by their success. Our quip of the day, in fact we have two of them, comes from our pal Will Durst, who had his own page in uh, Uncle John's Bathroom Reader, the 14th edition, titled Will's Wisecracks. First one is, the federal government announced it was worried about the long-term effects of medical marijuana on the terminally ill. Second was, Jesse Ventura refereed a WCW event and caused an outcry. The wrestlers were afraid the appearance of a politician would cheapen the sport. That's why we like having Mr. Durst on the show every week. Our joke of the day is as follows. A professor at the University of Waco was giving a lecture on the supernatural. He asked the audience, how many people here believe in ghosts? 90 students raised their hand. How many think they've seen a ghost? About 40 students raised their hand. Anyone talk to a ghost? Still about 15 hands up. Anyone feel they ever touched a ghost? Three students still kept their hands up. Have any of you ever made love to a ghost? Up in the back, Bubba still had his hand up. Professor took off his glasses, said, In all the years I've been given this lecture, no one's ever claimed to have made love to a ghost. Please! 
Come up here and tell us about your experience. Student smiled and made his way up to the podium. When he got to the front, the professor said, So, Bubba, tell us what it's like to have sex with a ghost. Bubba says, Ghost? Shucks. From back there, I thought y'all said goat. By the way, we should mention that the jokes heard on this program do not necessarily represent the sense of humor of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. We and we alone are responsible. Our stat of the day is as follows. One million dollars. That was the payoff amount that the top executives at Blackwater Worldwide approved to secretly buy the silence of Iraqi officials after the security firm's guards shot up 17 Iraqi citizens. It's been noted that it's not known if any of that money actually changed hands or to which Iraqi officials it may have been directed. Bribing foreign officials is illegal under the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. A spokesman for Blackwater, which now calls itself Z Services, spelled X-E, called the charges baseless. Let's see if we can't do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week, or I think it was maybe two weeks ago, for having the right connections, when it was revealed that Goldman Sachs and Citigroup received some much-sought-after allotments of swine flu vaccine ahead of many hospitals, clinics, and pediatricians. And no, there was no explanation from federal authorities on why those jackasses need to get protected from the swine flu. We'll have more to say on that later. It was, conversely, a bad week for trying to ride free. Last week, after India's Northern Railway hired 36 boxers and wrestlers to collect tickets and make sure that ticketless passengers pay the fare and a fine to remain on board. Said a company spokesman, there's absolutely no intimidation involved. I'm sure you would allege that charges of intimidation are baseless. And uh, by far and away, and far and away, my personal favorite, it was an ugly week last week for technology. When it was revealed that the problem-plagued Large Hadron Collider in Europe, which is going to be the world's most powerful particle accelerator, if they can ever get it operating, was temporarily shut down once again after a bird dropped a piece of baguette on a section of the accelerator, which apparently caused overheating. And no, we don't understand how it is a piece of bread can overheat a particle accelerator, but, you know, (laughs) sometimes this mad scientist technology is, you know, a hard thing to rein in. All right, we'd also like to thank The Week magazine for its Only in America section, of which we'd like to, of which we have two items we'd like to cite. Apparently last week, a Missouri woman lost a legal battle to bring a monkey into shops and restaurants. Debbie Rose had sued under the Americans with Disabilities Act, claiming that Richard, a bonnet macaque, was a service animal who helped her cope with anxiety. But a judge ruled that Rose failed to prove she is disabled without the monkey. Protested Rose, I won't be able to function. No, no word on how functional she is with the monkey. 
you know, these might more properly be called only in the American legal system rather than only in America, but item two, a visually impaired man is now suing the Sony Corporation for not making its video games accessible to blind people. Alexander Stern claims in his suit that the American with Disabilities Act entitles him to full and equal enjoyment of Sony's products, but that the company has so far, quote, constructed the products in a way that blind people cannot enjoy. Boy, who are they going to sue next? Flight schools? Residencies in surgery? Wait, wait, I got it. (laughs) The Major League Baseball Umpires Association. Why don't we sue them? Which does remind me of a very hilarious uh, National Lampoon spoof cover they had many years back where they parodied Sports Illustrated magazine (laughs) that showed a guy with a seeing-eye dog and dark glasses behind the plate at a ball game when it was titled The Call is Courage, Blind Empire, Cal Tinsley. All right, to change the subject rather dramatically, we don't know whether any of you took our advice uh, earlier in the week and got up in the middle of the night to see if you could see the Leonid meteor shower, but I must confess that I did not. Although the weather did cooperate uh, earlier this week, uh, to really get good viewing of meteors here in the Central Valley of California, you need to travel up into the hills, and I just wasn't up for it. I hope some of you did, however, and were rewarded with uh, some uh, flashes in the sky. But the best evidence was that if there was going to be something approaching a meteor storm with rates of maybe 300 to 500 an hour, it was likely to be seen in Asia. In a check of spaceweather.com, a website I recommend to you highly, reveals that, well, this year uh, there wasn't much of a show. But if you're determined to see something in the sky and have some equipment available, you may want to look for a special asteroid occultation to take place uh, uh, the night of the 20th, 21st. That would be in the wee hours tomorrow night. Asteroid 234 Barbara, an object about uh, 30 miles across, is going to move in front of a star, and depending on where on Earth you observe it, they should be able to get a profile of what the asteroid looks like. We talked about this very thing last year, December 11th, 2008, when asteroid 135 Hertha moved in front of a star. We're wondering whatever happened uh, to that investigation, and the current edition of Sky and Telescope had the results by uh, by observing the appearance and disappearance of the star from different places on the Earth. They got an amazingly accurate profile of what the shape of the asteroid is. It's pretty amazing stuff, dependent on uh, modern technology and very, very precise timing. It's nice to note that with modern equipment, amateur astronomers are making major contributions to uh, studies not just of our solar system, but things out in deep space as well. We would refer you to your uh, favorite astronomy magazine for more on those topics. We're also waiting uh, with bated breath for the results of what happened when the Rosetta spacecraft swung by the Earth last week. We've talked in this program about the mysterious accelerations which have taken place as numerous spacecraft have uh, sort of swung by the Earth in effort to get a little gravity boost. There have been many that have done this, and they can measure with great, great precision um, the accelerations or decelerations of these objects, and the numbers have not been adding up. So as the Rosetta spacecraft swung by the Earth on the 13th of this month, well, it's bound to have had some changes. According to New Scientist magazine, if it gains an extra 1.1 millimeter per second, 
acceleration relative to the Earth. It would vindicate a formula that reproduces these anomalies, uh, which were published last year by ex-NASA scientist John Anderson. These, uh, this team thinks that the Earth rotation may be distorting space-time more than expected by Einstein's theories. Truthfully, I wouldn't bet on that. They've been trying to disprove Einstein for a long time now, and no one's been able to find a chink in the armor. Nevertheless, the mystery does remain, and an explanation is required, so science will continue to grapple with it. Since it's kind of cool, we'll continue to cover it. Now, sometimes we kind of despair for good news uh, on this show, but we have a couple of uh, items from the world of biology that are worth celebrating. The first, closer to home here in California, is that the California brown pelican, which was declared an endangered species back in 1970, has now recovered its population so well that it's been taken off the list. Back in about 1970, uh, uh, the pelican, along with a lot of other birds of prey, the bald eagle and peregrine falcon, were being decimated by the use of DDT. For some reason, uh, this chemical caused the eggshells of the birds to become especially thin, and they would break during incubation, and that was the end of the next generation of birds. Well, DDT was banned in 1972, and its, uh, it's concentrations in the food chain have, uh, have reduced, and the birds are reproducing, and they're back. In fact, the California brown pelican population is estimated at between 150,000 and 200,000. And cruising around Monterey Bay this summer, I was uh, delighted to see these birds out there fishing and flying about. And I do remember, you know, back several decades ago when you just didn't see too many of these birds. So, Mr. McMillan, let, let's hear it for the efforts to restore the pelican, efforts which appear pretty darn successful. An even more dramatic story from the UK. Apparently, a species of bumblebee, which has died out in the British Isles, no doubt, uh, you know, I would suspect due to agricultural chemicals. Well, it's now being repopulated thanks to the fact that back in 1875, this bumblebee was sent to New Zealand to pollinate the clover that they put down there to, uh, to enhance grazing for sheep and other animals. And... Uh, I guess the population in New Zealand did very well, thank you very much, and now it's being used to go back across the oceans, literally to the other end of the earth, to uh, restore what, uh, what was once found in the British Isles. Apparently the Bumblebee Conservation Trust at the University of Stirling, UK, is, um, is going to breed these, these bees in New Zealand and then refrigerate them to induce hibernation and avoid jet lag and transport them back to the UK. Incidentally, that's how they got to New Zealand in the first place. They put them on refrigerated ships, which then, uh, you know, in the early era of refrigeration, allowed them to ship lamb all over the world and made New Zealand uh, a place with quite a high standard of living for many decades. Well, not to say the Kiwis aren't, aren't doing too bad <laughs> at the present time, but... Uh, but uh, the times maybe aren't quite as rosy as they once were. I'm sorry to report we did not get some follow-up with our New Zealand correspondent, Michael Bana. He was set to introduce a shark exhibit in what was going to be the world's largest aquarium we gather in Atlanta, Georgia. But uh, Michael's been lost to follow-up. We're going to track him down and bring him back to, to talk about how that's going. All right, and some other good news. Apparently, a British film collector recently bought a film tin on eBay for five bucks because he liked the way it looked. When he opened it up, he found out that there was a canister with a seven-minute Charlie Chaplin movie that film historians had long assumed was lost to posterity. The movie was uh, made of some outtakes of previous Chaplin shorts, 
and was uh, strung together uh, in a war effort. British propagandists called it Zept, and uh, Chaplin was shown wishing he could return to Europe to fight the Kaiser. Uh, experts say that this film could sell for as much as $75,000. And something else that may have been lost to history going way back is the fact that, um, well, they may have discovered the remains of 50,000 Persian soldiers killed in a freak sandstorm 2,500 years ago. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote about the lost army of King Cambyses II, who was, which was sent to conquer Egypt in 525 B.C. According to Herodotus, a wind arose from the south, strong and deadly, bringing with it vast columns of whirling sand, which entirely covered up the troops and caused them wholly to disappear. Modern historians thought the story was fanciful, but archaeologists Angelo and Alfredo Castiglione announced this week they'd found hundreds of skeletons along with ancient Persian arrowheads and artifacts in the Sahara. Now, Herodotus was often called the father of lies by early historians, although by all accounts he is the first of what we could consider uh, in our modern eyes an actual historian who was trying to write objectively about events. We quoted the man on our show a few weeks ago when he once said famously, very few things happen at the right time and the rest do not happen at all. The conscientious historian will correct these defects. So admittedly, he was not necessarily a stickler for detail or, or accuracy, but, uh, but it looks like he got one of these stories right. I mean, a lot of the things he wrote about seemed so fantastic to people that heard these tales that they thought this must be a pack of lies, but uh, in many instances, they were not. And perhaps the story of the lost Persian soldiers is going to be vindicated now with further digging out in the Sahara. And we also want to thank uh, contributor Millie for sending us an email that talked about how, well, I don't know how to describe this. But writing 80 years ago, not that long after uh, Einstein, the legendary physicist Paul Dirac said that it must be possible for a magnetic north and south poles to exist separately. But despite decades of searching, not one has been found. Apparently last year, some researchers demonstrated that certain states of crystalline material spin ice can create monopoles that would rove about in the crystal. Now, apparently this is some pretty big news for physicists out there, but I have to confess, I don't quite understand it. For that matter, I'm not even sure exactly what they're talking about when they use the term spin ice. So either I need to do more homework, or better yet, one of you out there in the listening audience can clue me in as to what's going on because uh, we know that a lot of you smart folks know a lot of things and you probably know something about this. So drop a line at info at radioparallax.com and then I can hopefully share it with the rest of you. We said we'd be to talking about uh, ice on the moon. I noticed that it really got quite a bit of play. Uh, front page of the Sacramento Bee was being treated like it was something rather earth-shaking. Well, we've been talking about it on this program for quite a while. And uh, make no mistake about it, we're glad that they apparently have found ice on the moon. That'll mean if we ever go to the moon, it'll be a lot easier to have a, a, a lunar base. But folks, the really cool thing is that there's ice all over the place on the planet Mars, which is where we need to go. And uh, you may have read that there's some efforts at NASA to try and unstick the Mars Spirit rover. Both rovers are still functioning. What is it now, six years later? But the Spirit's got a bum wheel, and it's stuck, and they're not sure they're going to get it out. Uh, you know, it'll still be a stationary uh, 
uh, robot, which is not as much fun as being able to rove about. But the Opportunity rover appears to be uh, mobile and in a pretty good shape, and so we expect to continue to get science from these, uh, these wonderful uh, craft for some time. But uh, Spirit might not make it through the next winter if they can't get it uh, unstuck and pointed in a direction to, to charge its batteries more effectively during the upcoming Martian winter. We're pleased to note that we had the Chief Investigator Steve Squires on this show years ago. And we would refer you to our archives to, uh, to hear that, uh, that segment. There was a wonderful program on the Science Channel this week titled Tank on the Moon, which I hope you caught. Talked about a secret chapter in the race to the moon, which took place in the 1960s, when the Soviet Union realized they were not going to beat the U.S. to putting men on the moon. They decided to send robots instead. In fact, it's not well known, but uh, the Russians put two Lunokhod robots uh, on the moon, which for 16 months between 1970 and 1973 drove more than 30 miles across the lunar surface. These were guided by... um, uh, remote control, obviously, from, from here on Earth, and for its time was quite revolutionary. In fact, it was almost three decades before the U.S. tried to do this with the Pathfinder little rover that was put on Mars back in 1996. Well, it turns out that uh, the Russian scientists that uh, directed this program were instrumental after the fall of the Soviet Union in coming to the United States and assisting efforts here and uh, putting robots on, uh, on Mars. And I'm quite certain that Steve Squires and uh, the builders of the Spirit and Opportunity uh, rovers owe a great debt to these Soviet scientists. I was, I was enormously pleased to see a Planetary uh, Society director, Louis Friedman, talking about uh, this on, on the special. We've not had Dr. Friedman on this program yet, but he has been heard many times on, uh, on KDVS on Planetary Radio. In fact, a few days before I saw this special, I was listening to a great segment of Planetary Radio featuring Lou Friedman and also Bruce Betts, who we've had on the show a couple times, along with Matt Kaplan, the show's host. So we've done two out of the three on this program, and we're going we're gonna to bring you Dr. Friedman to talk about uh, Tank on the Moon, about robots and other planets, because, because, because we just love this stuff. Let's take a short break. But before we do, let's see what our old pal Will Durst has to say. Thanks, Doug. And today I'm here to kickstart the National Parade of Giving Thanks down Fifth Avenue. Because Turkey Holocaust Day is right around the corner. And to be honest, in trying times like these, we could all use a little comforting tryptophan poisoning. Especially because this holiday isn't about greasing the wheels of capitalism with the fire hose of consumer debt like that other holiday not too far down the road. This one is about gluttony. Pure and simple. And the only religion involved has to do with football and hating the Cowboys. So, allow me to express my gratitude for the fourth Thursday of November, it being one of the little things that makes life worth living. And here's a couple of other examples of what a middle-aged, round-headed political comic gives thanks for. For Sarah Palin, because to those of us going cold turkey and George Bush, she's like a double dose of methadone. For Barack Obama, for persevering in the face of apoplectic rednecks who will never get used to the country being run by a black guy living in public housing. 
for Dick Cheney, who hurt his back on inaugural eve moving boxes. Uh-huh. Apparently, even though they were empty, Pandora needed them back. For Joe Biden, who shoots himself in the foot so often his nickname should be Stumpy. For Norm Coleman, who finally lost the Minnesota Senator's race to Al Franken. The same guy who lost to Jesse Ventura. So now he's lost to a comic and a wrestler. Not going to ever run again for fear of being challenged by a rodeo clown. For the GOP, which is waging an internal war for their very soul. Yeah, the GOP soul. As oxymoronic as the Democrats conducting a leadership fight. For Bill Clinton, who flew to North Korea on an empty plane and came home with two hot Asian journalist chicks. Come on, this guy is still good. I hear he's going back for more. And finally, for George W. Bush, who announced his intention to open up a think tank. Let me repeat that, the George W. Bush think tank. You can't make stuff up like this. Life is good. For Radio Parallax, I thankfully remain Will Durst. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.